Hey, welcome back to Hints and Guesses. I guess I have to welcome myself back to the podcasting world from my uh, little winter hiatus. <laughs> I make podcasts when I'm inspired, and just recently I've been inspired again. I'd been working on an idea uh, for a while now that is related to the biblical narrative, the biblical story. Narrative sounds too fancy, the Bible stories. And um, I, I've gone back and forth, back and forth. Should I do it? Should I not do it? I'd have, I thought about making it sort of a, a downloadable, independent thing, charge for it. But I said, no, I'll just put it out there on the worldwide webs and um, see what happens. And some of my ambivalence has to do with my own story around the Bible. The Bible has been a part of my, I don't know, it's been a part of my life since I was, you know, just a tiny little kid. I mean, it's, those were the main stories I grew up with. Some of my earliest memories are of flannel graphs. If you don't want to know what a flannel graph is, look it up. It's this way of telling the stories. I, I, I remember these. They're, they're sort of burned into my, um, my memory. They shaped, um, the biblical narratives shaped, um, shaped my life and my, uh, fears and hopes and, and colored my imagination. And I think it, when I went to graduate school and got really serious about the Bible, and even when I started working on the NIV first century study Bible, which I put out a few years ago, which you're welcome to buy, um, in some ways, I was working through the, um, working through my childhood and and what these stories had meant to me, how I had misunderstood them, and understood them, um, how I had or my culture, my fundamentalist culture, had gotten them wrong and gotten them right, and it, I I couldn't let it go. That the I couldn't let the stories go. My my hangups and problems actually drove me deeper into the stories themselves and into Hebrew and, and into cultural background stuff. And I think for a long time I believed that it was kind of like um I I was just missing the key. And perhaps if I could find the right key, I could unlock the story or stories, the meaning. Um kind of like when you hear pastors say, well, um, you have to understand the word in Hebrew or Greek means this, therefore, voila, you know, all of a sudden the, the passage comes to life. And, and there's some truth to that, but I, I never really found the, the magic key because that's not the way the stories work anyway. Um, and, and I think sort of post, uh, being an evangelical pastor, I haven't had to look at the Bible each week, which has had sort of pros and cons. In some ways, it's been a relief. I can read whatever I want. The con is that um, the stories, for me personally, held me in a certain kind of place, gave me something other than my own musings to ground me or to orient, maybe it's more like a compass, something to, to orient around and not having to, to take a serious look at the very troubling, um, 
passages and stories and images in the Bible each week has in a way been a loss. And, and the truth is I haven't been able to get away from them. They come up anyway. And probably one of the more mysterious and I think unexpected realities in my own life is that the moment I started getting even more serious about my own spiritual life, I guess you could say, or, or going for further on, on my, my own uh, journey and really having a lot of um, tenets of what I called faith unravel and um, I don't know, process of deconstruction, something like that. It's only then that the stories I could see more deeply. They resonated more deeply. Like I did a podcast not that long ago on the sign of Jonah. It's like even the the classic story of of Jonah um, trying to run from God, being swallowed into the underworld, really dying and being spit out onto another shore. That's an epic story of transformation. And it wasn't until I felt like I was in the middle of such a thing or in the heart of the whale's belly that um, I could really hear the story. I guess that's why Jesus is always saying, uh, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And he who has eyes to see, let him see. And in other words, if you can't hear what you can't hear, you can't see what you can't see. And I don't think Western civilization is done with the Bible. I, I don't care what um, the new atheists say and... Uh, that although they have many wonderful critiques about religion and maybe just a certain version of religion, if we're honest, um, kind of a, a pretty fundamentalist version is the thing that they're critiquing all the time. But um, this idea that we'll just become more and more rational and more and more enlightened, and we, won't, we won't need the old stories and, and we'll just move into an era, a time period of scientific certainty and, and technology will govern our lives. I think that is bullshit. And um, because the psyche is old and just like human biology is old, we think we're, quote, in control of our lives. And there are forces that are, you know, um, five million years old at work in our, you know, prefrontal cortex and our limbic system and so forth and so on. Um, the same goes with the psyche and and. The psyche speaks in images, metaphors, and symbols. And it's old. And the metaphors, images, and symbols are old. And part of, at least for many, most Western people, I might add, the Bible is a part of the, of the collective Western psyche. It's informed who we think we are in the world, how we got here. What our story of um, uh, what our story is, both conscious and unconscious, the the stories sit somewhere deep, and we can't just by some process of mega letting go, or as if we could clean out our our deep unconscious. Uh, we can't do that. There they are. They they sit there, and maybe they're there for a reason, and maybe they have more to offer now in the 21st century than they ever did 
maybe we're actually reaching a kind of pinnacle where um, there's a much more integrative way of coming to the great stories than we ever had access to before. I, I used to tell people this, and it's true, that and it sounds like an exaggeration, but um, I know more about uh, first the first century than Paul did who lived in the first century. I know on one hand that's stupid, but what I mean is from a cultural background point of view, um, all of these philosophical um, streams and forces that were, work, were at work, all these economic forces that were at work, um, all these various religious strands that were at work in the culture, we can now look at and examine in a way they couldn't even in the first century. Um, or if we go go back in time, like we, you know, scholars know more about the Fertile Crescent than Moses did in terms of cultural background. So it's like an incredible time to look at these narratives, not to mention archaeology and sociology and anthropology and and science and geology and um, psychology and all the ologies, whatever, um, means we have a lot more tools in our at our disposal and we have a lot more nuanced ways of hearing these stories even even mythology as a uh, as a category it's now a category when it used to just be called stories that people told around the fire now we know um, how they worked on people and how they worked inside of a culture so I think it's an incredible time to return to the biblical narrative. Uh, I keep saying narrative, the biblical stories. Um, and, I, and actually, I think we should. Whether you're religious or not, whether you um, are in the church, have left the church, or somewhere in between, if you're not even coming from the, quote, Judeo-Christian perspective, I think we actually have, a, I would even use the word responsibility to look at the ways in which these stories have shaped uh, the Western mindset and learn to interact with them both personally and transpersonally. And one reason why I'm saying that is because they continue to influence economics and politics. You know, the two great things that, that we seem to be worshiping right now, the almighty economy. Well, um, the very forces that are at work in our economic systems are informed by readings and misreadings of the biblical story in terms of power um, and in terms of uh, hierarchy, in terms of uh, who's on the bottom and who's on the top and the overall value and worth of a human being. These are all things that the Bible cares very, very deeply about and um, sort of informs our modern culture in ways that are unexpected and and largely un, unknown and unexplored. So I have an idea for a series, and I, I, the series is called We've Lost the Plot. Great British phrase, we've lost the, the plot, and um, maybe the subtitle is something like Recovering the Great Stories. And that's what I, I intend to do, and... You know, like I said, I think I think this podcast is for people who are um, 
both don't care about the Bible and, and maybe some of you who do still care or you're on the fence and you can't decide. <laughs> I guess I just said it's for everybody. Um, at least I, I think it is for everyone. I always think it's odd like that um, the Bible is still, if, I'm, if I remember the statistics correctly, still the number one selling book. How can people still be buying copies of um, something so old and ancient? Now, you could say it's out of guilt and the institutional, you know, blah, 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 puts pressure on people. I don't know. Or maybe a better way to say it is that they're looking for something. And maybe they're looking for depth, meaning, story that is uh, has more richness than um, entertainment tonight or CNN. Or the ticker at the bottom of Fox News. Here it comes. These are the things that are important. Something like ancient stories, ancient sacred stories that the culture deems or uh, names sacred, like the like the biblical stories, um, don't aren't um, don't get in a huff about the ticker on the bottom of the screen. They've survived. Um, hundreds, thousands of years survived translations and cultures and languages and um, worldviews and even our massive evolution in worldview from even take the big one from like a pre-scientific worldview to now a post-scientific worldview, which we all share. It still survived even that. Much, much to I think people's surprise. I mean, you'd think We'd be like, oh, we really are done, but we're not. It, 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 it continues to be both alluring and repulsive, which, which means there's something there. There's something there, um, and, it's, and it's speaking to us, I think, uh, on the deeper level. And even when I think back to uh, when I was at Mars Hill here in Grand Rapids, starting with Rob and then, and, you know, it's... Not that you need to know its whole history, Rob Bell. Um, one of the things that was just obvious about it is that there were very simple things that happened on a Sunday morning. We opened up a story or a book and we looked at it and there was teaching about it and there were a few songs and that was it. It doesn't seem like, um, you know, this, <laughs> why would it work? And I, and I don't think it's just because wow, uh, Rob Bell is an amazing teacher, whatever, um, which I, he was a good teacher, but the material, it, 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 just by looking at it in and of itself, I think carried its own kind of power and drew people into the deeper streams, whether they wanted to or not. So that's a kind of like intro to this little podcast series. We've lost the plot, which we have. We have as a culture. And if we don't, and I mean we as in everybody, every parent, child, student, start saying something like, uh, how do we get on the a course toward meaning, then I think um, things are not looking positive. It seems like we'll continue to fragment and... Um, blame and and or play the victim and polarize and 
therefore our culture and our world becomes uh, more and more dangerous. And who would want that? And we'll continue to make the planet um, more and more inhabitable. And who would want that? No one really. No one really in their right mind. So um, I guess today's podcast will be kind of a little bit of an intro and maybe we'll look at one story or part of a story. So um, maybe one quick shout out too. I mean, I think it's a great title, We've Lost the Plot. So credit where credit is due. I was told my wife, hey, I'm thinking about doing a, some podcast on the Bible. What should I call it? She said, you should call it We've Lost the Plot. She's quite good at coming up with things like this. I at one point said, I think I'm going to start a podcast. What should I call it? She said, call it Hints and Guesses. <laughs> so <laughs> there you have it. Um, yeah, so let, let me make a couple of, um, of observations before uh, we begin. And the first is... Um, what is a story and what, what's important to know about a story, any story that we should carry with us sort of, uh, into an investigation like this. And, uh, the first thing I want to say is that the story is a link or a bridge, especially a sacred story, an ancient story like this, um, that has mythic components or mythopoetic components, symbolic components, metaphoric components, and oftentimes at least some historical uh, basis to it. Um, but a story is like a link or a bridge between the ineffable, the unknown, the mystery, the divine, we could say, um, and the ordinary. The ordinary sort of... Um, transgenerational world that we live in. The great thing about a story is that the basic components of it, a little kid can understand and, and the elder of the village can access. And that's part of what makes it sort of bridge worthy. How do we, how do we uh, bridge this, this supposed divide, divide between the transcendent, the ineffable, the hard to name, the unknown, the mystery, in our ordinary life, well, story is uh, creates a kind of bridge. It gives us maybe even on ramp is another way to say to say it. Here's an on ramp, and it's aimed toward the big mysteries of life. But the the actual path itself is pretty easy to traverse. And a story, in the most simple sense, just takes you from one point to another, like. Abraham lived in Ur of the Chaldeans, and he moved to Canaan. He moved from one place to the next. That's what stories do. They take you from one place to the next, and you get it right away. Oh, I see. He moved. Yes. And then now let's look at the details of the move itself. Let's, let's explore the values and, and hidden fissures in the story and um, the emotions, if there are some. A lot, a lot of times ancient stories don't have a lot of emotions, but we could say the literary tensions um, and what sort of value system is being created or pushed against, and all of a sudden you're in into the richness of a story itself. So I think that's the sort of um, some basic things to say 
about the nature of stories and all cultures had them. And I think a culture without stories is lost. And you could even say one reason why even movies and long form podcasts and any form of story. I love the Moth Radio Hour. What is so awesome about it? What's so awesome is that it's filled with stories. And right away, as soon as we're in a story, we know how to relate to it because our life has a story. I'm hearing a story. It's connecting me to a thread, the thread of being human, the the telling and, and retelling of a story and the savoring of a story and the uncomfortableness of a story. All that is magnetic and alive and vibrant and and a culture without stories is lost. And and I think even like um, these highly personal now I'm just um, just spinning off the the moth or other kinds of storytelling. Um, I, I participated in something called Failure Lab here in Grand Rapids where it was just filled with stories of failure. And um, the stories aren't like stories you would find in the Bible. You know, it's not like uh, someday they'll be canonized. Um, they're, they're highly personal, but in the telling of it, it connects us with those canonized and ancient and epic stories that have held um, culture within a framework of meaning. And that's part of what a story does. Not only does it connect us to the transcendent in some way, the hard to name, but it, in doing so, there's a thread of meaning. And we begin to orient around that thread of meaning, whether we're exactly on the path or not. Even if, even if the cultural thread is saying something like, this is what meaning looks like, and you find yourself veering off to the left or the right, you still have an orientation point. And that's part of, of how it serves uh, human beings. So, um, and it's also, I mean, just to celebrate story in general, we're dealing with a really poetry and art. Uh, art form. It's it's the creative, imaginative brilliance of human beings trying to orient their life around meaning, and that's to be celebrated and and to find some delight in. Even the darkest stories, uh, in a way, the the imaginative shimmering of just human possibility is just right on the edges of even our our sort of darkest and scariest stories um so yeah um the other thing that i've been telling people and and i just got back from israel and by the way quick uh mid mid podcast commercial i have another israel trip coming up in march couple of spots i know it's a bit last minute um but i'm taking a a church from Denver called Denver Community. My friend Michael Hidalgo is the pastor there. They've been before. They want to come again. And um, so if pilgrimage is something that interests you, a couple spots left on on the trip in March. I think it leaves March 13. Details are on my website. Um, but just I was just there in January. And one of the things that I like to tell people now is that there are really three interrelated ways of hearing, listening, interacting, and wrestling with the great stories. And all three matter. And maybe it's something like a braid um, that that functions like, like a thread I'm describing. And here they are in it, their most simple um, expression. The first is story. Asking, 
yourself, what's the story? What's the story? And in some ways, I can't speak to um, more mainline churches or, or Catholic churches or Orthodox churches, although I've been in all of them, of course. Um, but in Protestant churches, at least more recently, there's not a lot of story. It's A lot of it is just verse-oriented. And open up a verse and you look very, very carefully at a word or a phrase and you draw some conclusions by that. And oftentimes we never get around to saying, what's the story? What's the, what happened? Who are the characters? And where's, what's, what's being resolved here or unresolved? And, um, you know, what's the context of the, the, the story? Where does this sit in some sort of larger arc? That's number one. And, it's almost the most important. It's, it's, it's a great place to begin. You open it up. You read it like a story. You treat it like a story. You get curious about it like you would any story. That's strand number one. Strand number two is context. And this is all the stuff that I, I committed to learning about and moved to Israel to go to graduate school over. And what's the context? The context, the context, the context. Language, um, word etymology, um, geographical um, re- realities, and then all of the various disciplines like archaeology and sociology and so forth and so on. Context. And um, really, again, it's an amazing time to be alive because even 50 years ago, a question like context was in the hands of the minister. And they had been to seminary and they had uh, looked at the great German um, historical critical scholars and they had studied Greek and they blah, blah, blah. Well, that has become completely democratized. And with one Google search, you, you're you pretty deep into what what people took years to gain some expertise in, um, which is, you know, I'm not to praise the Internet. There's a lot of just total crap on there if you start Googling things about the Bible. However, context is not inaccessible and it's becoming part of, of the common way and even common expectation that the um, re- that religious communities are are beginning to have. They're beginning to value it. They're, they're starting to say things like, well, Jesus was Jewish. What does it mean to be Jewish? What was being Jewish like in the first century? Would you even call it Jewish? Um, is there such thing as a Jewish... Um, uh, way of looking at the story and um, what was Judaism or were there Judaisms and anyway in, into the weeds we go and the weeds are actually quite wonderful and and lively what happens is that it changes a bit of how we then come to the story itself it deepens how we come to the story it can it can lead us down some um, it, we can become obsessive where if I could just get this Greek word and all of its nuance exactly right, this is the danger of context, then I will know what God meant. That is way, way too far. That's not the way context works. It simply brings in a little nuance and depth and brings a little color to the story. And um, and it's needed and necessary. Here's the third. And probably the most overlooked, but the most powerful of the three. And that is the symbolic. 
level one is story or thread one is story thread two is context and the third thread is symbol or what i sometimes call the mythopoetic symbol is the language of the deep self the deep psyche it's um what has always made the great stories of humanity hum it's what helps the great stories of humanity transcend their given contexts it's the symbol what's the symbol what's the metaphor what's the image what's the archetype the archetype is a pattern it's a, it's an image that that shows up in various places and over time creates a kind of pattern like any mention of king and you're dealing with an archetype that transcends the given king you're talking about. You want to talk about King David? Let's talk about the archetype of a king. You want to talk about a, uh, Abraham? Let's talk about a wanderer. It says, my father was a wandering Aramean, it says of, of Abram. So now we're dealing with the wanderer archetype, which transcends and includes the given narrative of Abraham and connects us on the level of the deep psyche. Uh, to the story. And when you're dealing with the level of the symbolic, there's the personal and the transpersonal component to it. In other words, the story probably can, maybe not everyone, but has the possibility to speak to us very personally. It, especially, like, let's take Abraham, if we're in the season of wandering. It can, it can ring our bell. And we don't even know why we're drawn to it. And we're not that conscious of why we're drawn to a story like that. Same goes with, you know, any of the other um, great archetypal images that are in the Bible. Um, And it can speak on the transpersonal. So it might say something to us personally, but let's not get, um, you know, stuck with too much navel gazing. It might be telling us something larger. What is what does it mean to be a human being? What is the nature of of growing up? How have human beings been wrestling with the divine? How might the wanderer be be even part of a phase that we could call our own psycho spiritual growing up? Well, it turns out we can read it on that level, and I think um, at least some. Re- the, the Christian tradition, maybe some of you are familiar with Lexio Divina, which is divine reading would be one translation of that. And in its most simple form, it's, it's coming to a story or a poem and, and reading it and allowing um, yourself to be drawn to a single image or sometimes even a single word. And if we ask, what's at work in a process like that? Well, what's at work is the content or material in your own deep psyche is interacting and relating with the symbolic content of the story. We don't even know why we're drawn to a particular word. But as soon as we give ourselves over to it in a contemplative fashion, a whole world opens up. So the Christian tradition has always known about this sort of symbolic um, level of reading. And some of the our greatest mystics, this is what they specialized in, although they probably wouldn't use my particular language, but um, they found, they read themselves into the story. And and it wasn't just functioning like a mirror, which it often does. It also challenged. The stories end up not only mirroring back to us something that we can recognize from our own life, but sometimes putting a bone right in our throat or um, 
causing us to stumble or trip and fall over who we think we are in the world. It can be humiliating and humbling, uh, these stories. And when we, when we start to interact with them on this deeper level, on this, the level of the symbolic, I think one thing that can help us, this is not, you know, some sort of specialized, you don't have to be a contemplative or a mystic to come to the Bible symbolically at all. Um, but I still think it's part of this braid that I'm describing of story, context, and symbol. And allowing those three to be in a kind of uh, communion or union or conversation with one another um, makes for an extremely uh, rich experience. So, how does it work? Let's, I think... I don't want to do too much because I really wanted this to be an introduction, just a teaser for um, losing the plot here. So um, since I mentioned Abraham, let's let's take a look at the first few few verses of the Abraham story. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country. In Hebrew, it says something like lech lecha, go forth, wander or walk. It really is a direct translation. Go from your country your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. In some respects, we have the story already in a single sentence. Leave and go somewhere else. And hidden within that, it's not even hidden, is a, uh, is the reality that Ab- Abram doesn't know where he's going exactly. He'll know when he gets there. It will be revealed. So, the, the Abram story is a story about someone who leaves their original home for a home not yet discovered. We already know right from the bat, bat right from the beginning, we're dealing with a mythopoetic and symbol, symbolic story because human beings know what it's like to sometimes uh, physically uh, go go through something like this, and also psycho-spiritually. We, we, there's some deep craving within us that has to do with home, a deeper home, a, a place that will be shown to us as home or homecoming. So the, the story's digging around in that kind of place. And, and just to bring in a little bit of just contemporary like musings, all this uh, conversation about the border, build a wall, not build a wall, and these um, wanderers is the archetypal way of saying it, who are leaving their country, their, um, their country, their people, and their father's household or their mother's household. They're leaving the area that they've, they've called home for some unknown land a land they don't know anything about, a land that will be shown to them or not shown to them. There is something incredibly ancient about people wandering like that from one place to the next. And I think, honestly, and and now I'm um, maybe psychoanalyzing, which may be the sort of in an armchair kind of way, why this um, is such a hook for people because it's so deeply rooted in what it, in our Western psyche. We, too, were wanderers, all of us, especially white Europeans. We know what it's like 
and our ancestors know know what it's like to say goodbye to a home because we find it unpalatable or um, unsuitable to our values and to set off for the unknown. And so when we when we encounter that somewhere else, it, it's a hook, whether we want to welcome in people or whether we want to turn them away, it hooks us in some of the deepest places. So of course the the border fight is not about the border. Um, it's digging around in in some of our our deepest narratives about meaning and what it means to be a human being. So here we have a story of Abram leaving his uh, country and wandering to um, some unknown place. Now, it, let's bring in a little bit of context. And, and I don't necessarily mean um, historical background sort of context. If you back up in the story, we actually, if you look very carefully, it's Abram's father who originally set out for the land of Canaan, but for one reason or another, stalled out. He never made it. He said something like, we can imagine, hey, let's go to Canaan, but abandoned ship, failed to launch, took his family only so far, and just gave up. And by the time we get to Abram, who's 75 years old, according to the, st the story, something of the lure, L-O-R-E, family lore, we could say, of, of his own father, we can imagine, was functioning. After all, it says just leave and doesn't give Abram any direction, but he ends up going to Canaan. So where did he get this idea? Um, well, we could say maybe there was some unfinished business from his father, which cracks wide open the symbolic question. I wonder, um, I wonder if, in a transpersonal way, every generation takes a look at their fathers and mothers and says something like, well, this far you came, but you didn't come any further. You stalled out. You, um, drop the ball. Um, or if you don't have that particular feeling about your own father or mother, you went, you did what, what was yours to do. And some taking up of that um, narrative is what the next generation inherits. They inherit their own parents' junk, whether they like it or not. Whether they think their parent was uh, a coward and bailed on the big journey, or whether they looked at their parent as admirable. And I'm thinking about my own story. My, my grandfather was born in Detroit, um, the son of Irish immigrants from Northern Ireland. And um, so when my great-grandfather um, left Northern Ireland and came to Detroit, upon arriving, his uh, wife got cancer and died, my great-grandmother, and um, one of his sons was hit by a train in Ireland. So he suffered just, um, I can only imagine, a tremendous um, heartbreaking loss, so much so that it seemed like a better idea to go back to Northern Ireland, where it was very hard, life was very hard, than to remain in Detroit. And that's what he did. So when my, when my grandpa was three years old, uh, he moved back to Northern Ireland. Only um, 
Only later on in life, when my dad was 14 years old, my grandpa left Northern Ireland, boarded a ship, came to Ellis Island, and in a way came back home to a place he didn't know as home. I mean, I, I imagine he probably didn't have many memories from, from when he was three years old, but he had the story. He had the unfinished business, so to speak, of his own father at work, somewhere in the threads of his, his psyche, we could say. And I think that's a fair question. And, and it's a fair cultural question. Even if we think about the big stories of, of what does it mean to be an American? which is almost impossible to answer, or the dreams of our forefathers. Um, how far did they take it and where did they stop? And what's our responsibility moving forward? How, how will we journey from, from the place where our fathers left us and our mothers left us to this land that will be shown uh, to us? What will that be like? And I think um, one of the the other sort of aspects of this story that's maybe worth pointing out. This is only in the first verse, by the way. We could just go on and on through the entire chapter. Maybe next uh, podcast I'll just finish chapter 12 so we get a real sense of what this Abrahamic journey is like. Um, but the very foundations of identity are what's at stake. Leave your country. You know, your people. Think of flags and... and um, mascots and um, tax IDs and your country, your people, leave, leave. And then the second is your people within that country. So your, you could probably say here, you could add in your ethnicity. So you have a country and maybe that country it has a collection of ethnicities, but that's not enough. So God is saying to Abraham, leave your country, your flag, leave your people, your ethnicity, and finally, and probably the most disturbing, in your father's household. Those are the major three identity markers for every single culture that has ever lived. That's how we know who we are. We say, I'm an American. We have boxes that we check for our ethnicity, and we have our father. I think we can broaden this to father and mother here, our parents, we have our lineage, our personal lineage. All of that set, we're able to say, well, I know who I am. Here's my last name. Here's my people. And here's my country. Except there's something about the big story going on the grand adventure. And this is definitely an adventure in the hero's journey kind of adventure. And I'll say something about that in a second. But, um, but where every single identity marker is taken. And this happens at 75 years old. So the clue is, the symbolic clue is, so you think you know who you are. So you think you know who you are. And you think you know what home is, but there is a bigger journey. There's a deeper journey. There's a much more frightening journey. What if your very identity was stripped away from you? the very identity you, you personally and your family and your country work so hard to create. Who are you without that? And that's the Abram story. And the very next promise is, I will make your name great. Well, how? You just took my name away from me. I do not know who I am. That's faith. That is wandering out on the big story saying, I aim to find out if there is a deeper me than I thought there was. 
when I started this journey. Or there's a home that um, is much more my home than than the country I grew up in and the people that I called my people and the father who I was up underneath. What if there's a, a, a richer homecoming that awaits that's going to require an intentional leaving behind? And that's that, and, and I mentioned Hero's Journey. I, I'm thinking of Joseph Campbell. The first major step is to leave home. I have a little section in my, in my book, Bitten by a Camel, about this. Leave. Leave your father and mother. Or as Jesus says, says it, like, in his problematic way, unless you hate your father and mother, you can't be a part of my kingdom. Now, what, what on earth are you talking about? Well, I think such hyperbolic language is something like is saying something like it's really hard to leave home. It's really, really hard to leave home. It's really, really hard to let go of the identity markers of the first half of life that helped create our own personas or masks. That's what persona means that gave us a real sense of who we thought we were in the world only to venture out on the larger journey and what awaits. There are not there's a promise, I'll make your name great. Well, what is that exactly does that mean? I'll bless you. And we have to ask, what is the nature of blessing? But there's absolutely nothing easy about even taking the first steps out into the unknown like this. And this is the opening narrative of the opening story, really, of the Jewish people. In other words, the meta-meta story of the Bible starts with Abram. Not really Noah, not Adam and Eve, not Cain and Abel. These are sort of like um, uh, create a kind of mythic backdrop. Drop. But when we're talking about people in a land, a people group, it starts with Abram. And the opening story should strike in a way fear, right? Cut right through us about um, what we think the nature of, of, um, of homecoming really is. And what actually might be at stake if we were to go on the larger, and I think I, w I could, would say fairly here, the symbolic journey toward a truer homecoming. What might be asked? And yeah, I'll say more because the rest of the chapter, I think, contains uh, um, a lot of surprises. In other words, it costs Abram something and something vital. I just now thought of uh, T.S. Eliot's um, line, costing not less than everything. Quick now, here now, always. A condition of complete simplicity, says T.S. Eliot. Costing not less than everything. The big journey, um, the archetypal journey, the journey of growing up into a true adult, a true elder, a true generative presence in this world will cost not less than everything. Only then does T.S. Eliot say, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. A lot of people are drawn to that line. All shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. But skip over costing not less than everything. So the kind of homecoming that I think is hinted at here in the richest streams of the Bible costs us something. We too become like the wandering Aramean. All right, that's, yeah, so that's it. That's, um, 
a little introduction to um, what I hope will will turn into a series. Um, if you want me to talk about a particular story, send me a tweet. I'm not much of a Twitter person, but I can become one. I ought to learn it. In some ways, I think it's a more interesting medium than uh, Facebook, definitely. Um, so send me a tweet. If, you, if there's a particular story that you like or that you hate or that you think, yeah, good luck with this in your fancy little story context and symbol, let me know. And we'll have a look at it and we'll see if there's not some... Um, some richness and some seeds of meaning there that are sort of hidden in plain sight. So send me a tweet um, if you've got any ideas for a story, and we'll, we'll take it up next time with uh, We've Lost the Plot, Recovering the Great Stories. Thanks for listening.